Why don't you open your Bibles or navigate on your devices to Judges chapter 2. The book of Judges in the Old Testament chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. The topic there, the Lord talks to the generation after Joshua's death who refused to drive out Israel's enemies from the promised land. The title of our message, talking about my generation. Have a word of prayer. Father, as we look at this uh, disobedient generation, I I pray that uh, we would desire, Lord, more from ourselves, that we would want to finish strong the way Joshua did and Caleb did, and not be subject to uh, disobedience and discipline. And so use these verses, Lord, to speak to our hearts. Uh, We pray that your Holy Spirit would fulfill his role as our teacher. And that he would take your word and discern between the soul and the spirit in our hearts so that we might know that we've heard from you in a sweet and gracious way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, grandparenting, one of the incredible joys in life. Rudy Giuliani said, what children need most are the essentials that grandparents provide in abundance. They give unconditional love, kindness, patience, humor, comfort, lessons in life, and most importantly, cookies. Now, in our case, it's chocolate, currently in the form of Hershey's Kisses. Lots of those, when their parents aren't watching. I'm sorry, what did I say? I like this anonymous quote, grandfathers are just antique little boys. Is that cute? Not to be outdone, Mr. Anonymous didn't forget grandmothers. Grandmothers hold our tiny hands for just a little while, but our hearts forever. (laughs) There are, however, those who give grandparenting a bad name. I hope you're not among them. They're the ones that blatantly display the bumper sticker that says, my grandkids are cuter than yours. Or this one, my grandkids are smarter than your grandkids. I'm surprised there's not more road rage over that, to tell you the truth. Now, there's someone you know who cannot ever have grandkids. God has no grandchildren. No one is sure who first said that, but here's a quote with commentary from Ken Ham. God has no grandchildren. We are all individually responsible to God. When saved by His awesome power, we are adopted as His personal sons and daughters. Not one of us can claim the faith of our father or mother as our own. There is no such thing as a spiritual grandchild of God. We each must come to Him on our own. If we don't have our own faith, we have no faith. The failure of the next generation to come to know the Lord has a name. It's called second generation syndrome. The Israelites suffered from it in the book of Judges, beginning right after the death of Joshua and the elders after him. It says in verse 10, When all Joshua's generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done. For Israel. To use a modern idiom, they may have thought they'd be grandfathered in to a relationship with the Lord, but it doesn't work that way. Thinking about ourselves, there are at least two applications of this text. One would be our own second generation syndrome, and by that I mean imparting Jesus to our kids in a meaningful way. 
But the other application would be to any Christian who may drift into a superficial rather than a supernatural relationship with Jesus. And I think that is far more applicable to us as a group this morning. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, maintain a first-generation supernatural walk with Jesus. And number two, refrain from a second-generation superficial walk with Jesus. Now, chapter 2 is not in chronological order. Verses 1 through 5 are what happened after Joshua's death that is then reported in verses 6 through 10. For our purposes, we're going to look at Joshua's death first. Now, I hate to quote him, and I don't want to give his words any spiritual significance, but Yoda once said, do or do not... See, he's famous. Do or do not, there is no try. The sentiment is appropriate here because from the outset, I need to tell you that as we read these verses about Joshua, there are no suggested steps or principles to maintaining a spiritual, uh, supernatural walk. To borrow another famous quote, Joshua essentially says to the Israelites, just do it. So we like that, right? We, we, normally in a Bible study or reading a book, it's like the five things that we must do or the three things that are suggested or whatever. Joshua just says, as we'll see, he says, hey, you want to serve the Lord? You want to serve the gods of this world? You choose, do it. Uh, and so in verse 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Now, this is looking back historically to Joshua's famous as for me and my house speech. Uh, one of the verses in that speech goes like this. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so you see what I mean about decisiveness. It's either or. You either choose to serve God or you are choosing to serve the false gods of this world. There was no trying to serve the Lord. Do or do not, just do it. Now, either we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us or we cannot. We're not promised we can do some things through Christ and the rest on our own. God's power isn't portioned out, it isn't rationed out. Think of a film you've watched where folks are lost at sea, they're drifting in their lifeboat for weeks on end. There's always a rationing of supplies, and especially the water. You know they're about to get rescued when they are squeezing out the last drop of water from the little bag that they have and, uh, you know, it's, it's, they're all in despair uh, because they only have like a few hours left. And, and it's just enough to keep them barely alive until a new source comes. Now, God the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. But his effect in our lives is compared to water in the Scripture. I sometimes act as if his uh, effect is rationed out to me, as if I have just enough of him to barely survive my situation. I feel as though I'm squeezing out the last drop of his power before I give up. Jesus described him quite differently. In John, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke, John says, concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. And so, God the Holy Spirit, who is our source of power and empowering, is not rationed out to us. The word for rivers is sometimes translated torrents. The power to serve and obey the Lord is torrential, not portional. 
Now, here's what I'm saying. I am not given more of God's Spirit as I grow or as I excel in certain disciplines. I don't earn more of His Spirit by becoming a better Christian. I can have His influence in my life in abundance any time. I can prove that by looking at the conversion of people to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to use myself as an example, but this would be true of many of you uh, who were saved later in life as an adult. A few seconds into being a baby Christian, I was no longer a drunkard, I was not a pothead, I wasn't somebody who cursed every other word. There was a remarkable change that took place in me. It wasn't on account of my maturity or my spiritual discipline in those ten seconds. It was the work of the now indwelling Holy Spirit who was empowering my new life in Christ. I knew I was supposed to do certain things in order to grow, to pray and to read the Bible and to go to church and to share my faith. But I had the power to do all that and more right away. I wasn't trying to earn the power to do that by doing those things. I could say no to sin. I could resist the devil before I ever heard of any spiritual armor. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we get to that chapter in Ephesians and we think about putting on the armor of God and and so many great studies. But you were already able to resist the devil, the devil. I always trip up on that. The devil, before you knew anything about the helmet of salvation or the breastplate of righteousness or the word of truth and all of that, you were already taking your stand against him. You could say no to sin and no to the devil. Joshua had set the example, and now he gave the exhortation. Then he sent the tribes away on their mission to conquer their inherited lands. That was it. No follow-up book, no seminars, uh, no quizzes. Just I'm gonna, my, Me and my family, we're going to finish well. We're going to serve the Lord. You go and do likewise or not. And, and so there must be a sense that they were able to do it without having to learn how to do it or to earn how to have it happen. They were just able. And so verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. The elders were children when Joshua was already old and who had walked uh, with their parents who died in the wilderness. They had observed firsthand as children the Egyptian plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the law, and the preservation of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. In their adulthood, along with Joshua, they saw the Jordan River divide. They were there when Jericho's walls miraculously fell. They experienced the sun standing still one day, and they watched as a hailstorm destroyed their enemies brought by the Lord. Verse 8, now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. Only three men in the Old Testament are explicitly called the servant of the Lord. They are Moses, and who would you guess the other one is? David, Moses and David. It's no lowly thing to be God's servant. Lowliness is the highest aspiration that you can have. Joshua died without appointing a successor. I'm not ready to say he made a mistake at the very end. God must not have told him to pick a successor. seems God did not want anyone to succeed Joshua. That makes no sense to us, but it made perfect sense to God. Each tribe would have its own elders, and as we'll see, the angel of the Lord was in the land. We see that when Joshua died, the elders continued to serve the Lord after him, 
and lead Israel. And it was after they died that the next generation had problems. And so Joshua didn't really need a successor. Later on in the history of Israel, they cry out for a king. We want to be like the other nations and have a king. And it grieved God that they wanted one man to lead them because he wanted to be their leader. And, and so a lot of times we, we impress upon things our own way of thinking. Well, Moses had Joshua, so who does Joshua have? He had nobody. There was no successor because they were heading into an entirely different time. We just need to be open to God's leading and not uh, our own templates. Verse 9, they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gosh. Joshua was buried in the center of what is today's Palestinian village of Kifli Haris. It's a short drive from the city of Ariel in the heart of Samaria. Every year, thousands of Jews commemorate his death on the 26th of the Hebrew month of Nisan by making a pilgrimage to his tomb. Verse 10, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So the question here, did the parents blow it by not teaching their children the ways and the works of the Lord? When our kids fail to receive the Lord or when they fall away from the Lord, it's hard to not blame ourselves. Now the word translated no is better translated acknowledged. The next generation did not acknowledge the Lord. That means they had heard a lot about him. Their parents and elders had done their jobs. Their children didn't acknowledge him. It was their willful choice to reject him. It was their unbelief. One commentator put it like this. He said, Israel had a godly heritage. They had the examples of the life of Joshua, the lives of the elders who outlived Joshua, as well as the experiences of other godly men like Caleb. Still, they chose to turn their backs on God. The allure and excitement of the surrounding pagan culture was more enticing than a life of obedience and inner spiritual peace. You might think they were at a disadvantage because they didn't see the works of God for themselves. But that's not true. Fast forward and think about Jesus for a minute. Think of the mighty works he went about performing. Most of the people who witnessed his healings and his exorcisms remained non-believers. Some of them even wanted to kill Jesus because of his mighty works. We have it in our minds because it makes sense to us that if a person experienced or saw a miracle, or if they actually saw Jesus Christ, that they would immediately get saved, and that a huge revival would break out. And the Bible teaches that that is just not true. When the sinless Son of God was on the earth, casting out demons by the thousands, and healing everyone that he either touched or spoke to or had an encounter with, When he was raising the dead, the religious leaders were seeking a way to kill him. And when he was killed, very few people rallied to him. He had few believers left uh, there in the upper room. And so it's a fallacy to think that our children are at a disadvantage because they didn't have a chance to become really heinous sinners first before they got saved. So tell your kids about God. Read them the Bible over and over again. Make church real and don't forget to make church fun. Most importantly, bottom line, you need to be in their eyes the servant of the Lord. 
Ultimately, they must choose for themselves whom they will serve, whether it's the God of the Bible or the gods of this world. Joshua was a first-generation believer who lived in the supernatural. So are you if you are saved. As we stated, God has no grandchildren, only sons and daughters. True, if you were saved as an adult, as I just mentioned, you experienced deliverance from sin differently than you would have if you'd been saved as a child. Sean McDowell, son of apologist Josh McDowell, tells the following story. He says, even though I grew up in a Christian home with parents in professional Christian ministry, there was a time that I walked away from God. I was tired of the rules, the authority, and simply wanted to live life my own way. And as you can imagine, I hit rock bottom. Feelings of loneliness and despair and the weight of sin simply overwhelmed me, and I hit the end of my rope. And so when I was four years old, I got down on my knees and decided I was going to follow Jesus. He did that as a sarcasm to point out that's what we think. We think, well, there's a person that that person knows what it is to be saved. And we have it in mind that if you're four years old and you receive Christ and if you've known him your whole life, there's some kind of a disadvantage. Uh, Do we really believe that being saved from an early age is a disadvantage? If we do, we need to stop. It's different, that's all. I, for one, could only wish I'd been saved sooner than I was. It was great being delivered from some of the sins I listed for you, but it would have been greater still to have never sinned in some of those ways in the first place. As far as the supernatural, Joshua saw a lot of that as we chronicled. Do you know what is truly supernatural? Having God reside in you. Think of that. So we're talking about the walls of Jericho falling down and hailstones coming down from heaven and all these. I mean, that's cool stuff. But every day when you get up out of bed, when you awake to a new day, the day that the Lord has made, God the Holy Spirit lives in you. It's amazing. when you, I mean, you, you don't get any more supernatural than that. You're able at any moment to yield to the influence of the third person of the Holy Trinity, Joshua experienced many wonders, but these Old Testament guys and gals did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They were saved, and the Holy Spirit would come upon them to empower them for their service, but we, the church, we experience something far greater in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. We need to stop thinking of Him as being rationed out to us and instead experience His torrential presence in our lives in order that we might do all things through Christ who strengthens us. You know, we sing David's psalm, uh, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And that's okay because David wrote those words. But we have to quit living like that can happen. God cannot take His Spirit away from us once He's come to live inside of us. Can we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit? Sure. Through sin and non-belief and all that. But we have to believe that at any moment, He can flow through us and be a torrent of living water. And that through that empowering, we can do and be all things. In verses 1 through 5, you want to refrain from a second generation superficial walk with Jesus. Second generation syndrome, it's an important topic. You can Google it later. We definitely want our children to know the Lord. But no matter how much you read about it, and I read a little bit kind of in my research this week, uh, let me save you a lot of reading. It all comes down to two things, example and evangelism. 
example in evangelism. First of all, be an example of loving Jesus and loving others. After all, that's the summary of the law. When they ask Jesus what is the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two principles, the whole law hangs. And so that's, I want to say, all we need to do. It's a tall order, but with the Holy Spirit, we're able to. No one perfectly, but be an example. Be a servant. And then be an evangelist to your kids and to kids in general. Realize they need to come to know and to receive Jesus for themselves because there are no spiritual grandchildren. This is a hard one for all of us, but you need to personally evangelize your children and seek to lead them to Jesus Christ, not assuming that they're going to just get it on their own. Growing up Roman Catholic, I was certain that I was going to go to heaven because I was part of the chosen people, the Italians, where the Vatican is located. It used to bother me when they had a non-Italian pope. I thought, how's that even possible? But seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm making light of it. It's a very serious error that you grow up with in Roman Catholicism, and that is that you are grandfathered in because you are part of that religious system. And sometimes we make this mistake as Protestants. We don't realize that those four-year-olds and five-year-olds and six-year-olds, you need to confront them with the gospel. Ask them if they know Jesus as their Savior and if they want to pray and have Him in their heart. But sometimes we think, oh, that can't happen. That's not real. Uh, they need to wait until they're teenagers or here or there to really come to, to know the Lord. And that's that stupid way of thinking that we have, that... You know, being an adult is somehow more powerful than being a child. And so evangelize your children. Be an example to them, evangelize them, uh, and that's what the Lord requires. Now, what I want to focus on is the other application of this text that I mentioned in the introduction, something that we can all relate to. It's the danger that any son or daughter of God can drift into a second-generation superficial walk with the Lord. It's the danger that you or I might become lukewarm, backslidden, leavers of our first love for Jesus. And so, verse 1, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Who is this guy making a surprise visit to the second generation? Well, the word angel throws us. It doesn't always mean a being we call, and the Bible calls, an angel. It's not always a Gabriel or a Michael. The word itself simply means messenger. There are at least two possibilities for who the angel of the Lord is. Number one, the angel of the Lord is a mighty angel who acted as the special representative of the Lord. Or, number two, it is God the Son, Jesus, taking a body for a short period of time. In the interest of time, I'll quote one of the commentators who gives this concise review of the evidence. He says, The angel of the Lord is very likely the pre-incarnate Christ, he who would become flesh for us. Here is some biblical proof that this being was more than a man or an angel. He was distinct from the Lord, yet he was called the Lord. Gideon's father Manoah said that the angel of the Lord was God. And the angel of the Lord claimed that he was God. And so we receive the angel of the Lord in the scripture as appearances of Jesus in a bodily form before he took bodily form in the New Testament. The Israelites in our chapter, we're quite familiar with the angel of the Lord. He had appeared to Joshua right at the beginning of their initial conquest of the land. There he called himself the commander of the Lord's army. I'll read it to you. It's from Joshua 5. 
And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And so he said, No. I love. I have, we always stop there because I think that's one of the greatest scenes in all of the Scripture. Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And he says, no. You're not even thinking clearly yet. The question is, are you for me or against me? You're on my side because he turns out to be the angel of the Lord. And he gives Joshua the strategy for taking Jericho. And so it goes on and it says, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have come... Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and what? He worshipped him. He recognized him as God. What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now this all happened at Gilgal. It was at Gilgal that the angel appeared to Joshua, and it seems like it served as a kind of headquarters for him, because now he comes up from Gilgal to this place called Bochum. Verse 1 goes on and says, I led you from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And so the angel recalls his powerful faithfulness in the Exodus and in the conquest of the promised land thus far. He could most assuredly be counted upon to help them now to finish the conquest of the land. He was, he was guys... You remember me from stories and, and all from the Exodus. You saw the great things that I did. And you remember the conquest of the land under Joshua. And it's going to be the same as you move forward if you want. One of the uh, devotional thoughts here is of Christians finishing well. We want to finish well. Paul said, I want to finish my race. I don't want to be disqualified at the end. So many Christians... Christian leaders on a national level even, not finishing well here at the end, you know, after tremendous ministries getting involved in, in things that they should have been over years ago, but the power of sin and, and you know, just slacking off and, and becoming uh, less spiritual and more superficial. All of us want to finish well. And the angel says, you can because the same God who was faithful to you when you were a baby Christian, whether you were four years old or 40, and who's gotten you to this point, he will help you finish well if you continue to yield to his indwelling presence. Verse 2, You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? The angel is talking to them after the history that we read in chapter 1, where we saw they did not drive out their enemies as they were instructed, but instead decided to put them under tribute, live side by side with them, and were influenced by their pagan culture and religion. When he says, why have you done this? He's not really asking for a reason, so much as he's calling upon them to repent. It's like, I'm telling you, you've done this, so you need to repent, uh, or agree with me, and repent, and be restored. And that's kind of the cycle in the book of Judges. When they would realize they sinned, they would cry out to the Lord, and he would restore them and save them. Anything less than agreeing with God is superficial. And we'll see they had a very superficial response to the Lord. In our case, our sins are forgiven at the cross, but we must own them and confess them to God in order to be brought back into fellowship with Him. When the indwelling Holy Spirit says, Why have you done this? It's no good denying sin or excusing it. It's, it's kind of comical until it's you when you're making an excuse for sin. 
and acting like God doesn't know your thoughts before you think them or doesn't know what's in your heart or that you're hiding something. Uh, And so when God busts us, whatever it is, however small or large, we need to just agree with God immediately, repent, and be restored. Uh, And that's that's what the angel is after. Verse 3, Therefore I also said, I won't drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and God's, uh, excuse me, their God shall be a snare to you. These were nothing more than natural consequences of their disobedience. God essentially was saying, if you're going to go ahead and live alongside these folks and borrow from their religion and their society, these are the results. If not driven out, your enemies are going to remain your enemies and be a constant sort of a, a source of opposition. And if not driven out, your enemies, their carnal, sensual religion is going to ensnare you. A typical second-generation mindset is to think that God's boundaries, that His restrictions, are wrong and too confining. We see that today in what people call the sexual revolution. I mean, how can heterosexual monogamous marriage for life, how can that still be the norm for modern thinking societies? But it remains the norm. And more than that, it is the only way societies can survive. What societies and individuals always find is that disobedience to God leads to servitude and slavery, while obedience yields true freedom. We are free within God's loving, wise, and even logical boundaries to enjoy all things. He is so much more than an earthly father, and yet we recognize that earthly fathers and mothers set boundaries for their children. We ought to revel in God's boundaries, not rebel against them. Think of your own kids. Wouldn't everything just be great if they just obeyed you? Don't you have their best interest in mind every minute of every day? Even when you're asleep, I mean, you never stop thinking of the best interests of your children. And you set loving boundaries and restrictions and restraints, and they always want to go against you. And you're like, we can leave for Disneyland right now if you'll just quit throwing a tantrum. I'll get the ice cream, or I'm going to have to say no ice cream for you. I mean, and you just part of it, part of parenting is just driving yourself crazy, wondering why they can't just go with the flow. <laughs> Disobey when you're on your own, when you leave the house. But for right now, there's no harmony, and it's all so fake, especially when they're totally little. And then you bring out the Hershey's kiss. Wow, everything's forgotten. What were you just crying about? I don't even know, but your boundaries stink and stuff. And so uh, we do the same thing with God. We read something in the Word and we say, well, maybe for you, but not for me. I don't like that. Or I'm going to live right at the fence with my hands through the fence and my nose. You know, I'm going to get right up close as as I can to the fence. Do you ever watch? I can't think of one right now. Do you ever watch something on TV and you're thinking, don't get so close to the fence? They grab you and they hold you and then you're, you're a zombie or something, you know. But what are you doing? Just get away from the fence. There's that 21-second rule, right? You remember the 21-second rule that they talk about? That I'm, uh, uh, This is going to make your Sunday. But that if you have a knife... And I, in fact, I got killed in a simulation one time uh, because I was the officer with my gun. My gun was, you know, holstered. And then this guy was standing there in the simulation. And all of a sudden, he comes up with a knife and he comes at you. And I shot him, but he was within 21 feet. And so before I was able to shoot him, he was able to kill me. And you might not believe that, but it's true. 
And we're, and so we're thinking as Christians, stay 22 feet away from sin. Why do you need to get within the 20 foot danger zone and think you're going to be okay? You're not. And, and so that's what the angel is telling me. He says, hey, you're living on the edge. In fact, you're over it. You've crossed over. I've lost my place. Anyway, we're free within God's loving and wise boundaries. Moving on. Verse 4. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that they lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of the place Bochum, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. We're, we're weeping so much that this place is weeping. This is Bochum. And we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. Bring out your sacrifices now. Now, their weeping looks and sounds good, but we know better. And their sacrifice looks and sounds good, but we know better. We know better because we have the after story which is all disobedience. Verse 11. Then the children of the Lord, or children of Israel rather, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. One commentator noted, if their slobbering spectacle had reflected genuine repentance, the book of Judges would have been a lot different from this point on. If someone repents, tells us they've repented, we ought to believe them. We ought to encourage them. But true repentance will also yield spiritual fruit. The person will be different. They will have been headed in one direction, and now they're headed in the opposite direction, bringing forth spiritual fruit. The angel of the Lord did not ask for a sacrifice. He called for obedience. Later, the book of Judges, uh, the author of the book of Judges, the prophet Samuel, would tell the first king of Israel, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. We don't normally bring sacrifices to the Lord, but I think sometimes we offer him less than confession and repentance. We make promises to read the word more, to pray longer, we tell them we're going to attend midweek Bible study. Wow! I mean, among evangelicals, the midweek Bible study, you, you, no one is more spiritual than the midweek Bible study attender. I mean, because there's so many other things that you can do. Now, those are all good things. They're things we ought to be doing, but they won't avail us any spiritual benefit if we don't agree with God and repent. God is not interested in our sacrifice, even in our weeping. If it's not genuine, he wants us to simply repent, and then we'll immediately be restored. Second-generation syndrome doesn't only affect the next generation. It can affect any Christian who allows their supernatural walk with the Lord to become a superficial walk. If you feel as though God the Holy Spirit has been rationed out to you, realize that he is a torrential flow into you and then through you. If you think you just this morning got your last drop of the Holy Spirit and, and you're about ready to croak. Uh, that's not how he is portrayed in the Scripture. I'm not talking about you acting crazy at church. This is, I, I don't know why the Holy Spirit is always associated with crazy behavior. If you really have the Spirit, you just kind of go wild, jumping through windows, beating your head on the, you know, and that kind of screaming and all. You know who the Holy Spirit is like? He's just like Jesus, is he not? Didn't Jesus say, I'll send you another comforter just like me? Did Jesus do any of those things? This is a complete rabbit trail, but did Jesus do any of those things? 
Did he do any of those wild, crazy things that people think you have to do because the Holy Spirit has come upon you? No. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and if you've seen Jesus, you understand the Spirit. And so he comes to empower you, to strengthen you, to do all things through Christ. And some of those all things are really hard. They involve a great deal of trouble and trial and suffering. And, and, but for him, you know, you might think you're on the last drop, but, but for his empowering, you would have been gone a long time ago. And so trust in him. Even if you're reduced to groanings, the Bible says, he interprets those to your Father in heaven who saves tears, each of them in his bottle. Um, I don't know if I'm looking forward or not to receiving my tear bottle in heaven, but it in, it's endearing to know that God is aware of every single tear that we shed. You believe in God, believe God right now for his empowering. If you're not a believer... God the Holy Spirit is revealing Jesus to you. That's his job. That's his joy. He is freeing your will right now so that you might receive the Lord and be born again. Let's pray.